This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 45 of Horsemanship Radio, brought to you by Index Fund Advisors, IFA.com. Horsemanship Radio is a part of the family of the Horse Radio Network. And today we have James Corral, jockey entrepreneur, and we have Jamie Jackson. He's the creator of Paddock Paradise, which is a boarding concept based on the lifestyles of the naturally healthy U.S. Great Basin Wild Horses. This is Debbie Lauks, and you're listening to the Horsemanship Radio. Thank you for joining us. Horsemanship Radio airs on the 15th and the 30th of the month, and I have my producer, Jen, with me today. Hi, Jen. Hello, Debbie. How are you? I'm doing great. I am uh, enjoy- currently enjoying some clear weather amongst the afternoon thunderstorms here in Ocala. Yeah, I was worried about those thunderstorms cutting us off. Are oh, we okay been, for today? Yeah, we're okay for today. It's been a tough week to record because the, re- the storms have been fast and furious, uh, but I yeah. think we skated today. Yeah. Okay. Whew. So lightning strikes and the whole thing, right? The whole thing. And the odd, the odd part is, and I'm sure this happens in all parts of the world where you get lightning, you'll have a lightning strike that seems to be miles and miles off and it zaps you. you, you oh. The power goes out, the, the router goes fluey. It's like, wow, well, the heck that happened? Uh, we, we've had a few of those this week, but we're okay. And um, I'm sure folks who live in parts of the country that are cold and miserable right now in the Southern Hemisphere are saying, shut up. You're in Ocala. It's warm. <laughs> you're in Florida. How bad can it be? That's yeah, right. That's exactly. right. No, I'm so glad you're handling all the technology. So all I can say is call me back when it's all better. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea how you do what you do. I'm amazed you're- at how often it, we're having thunderstorms and such and it, the microphones don't pick it up. Because yeah, sitting I'm- sitting here at this end watching, you know, watching the recorders run. I'm going, oh, my gosh, they're going to hear all the lightning. No, don't hear it at all. Nothing. I didn't hear any of it. Of course, maybe I'm hard of hearing. I don't know. Maybe that's it. (laughs) Well, I'm excited today to get into this show. We've got um, a couple of guys that come from really different worlds, to tell you the truth. Both highly opposite ends of the spectrum. Oh my gosh. How did I do that? There's no theme here whatsoever unless it's Opposites Day or something. Opposites (laughs) Attract. They both love horses. That's it. That's it. They do love horses. And they're highly intelligent guys. And uh, and that's maybe where it ends because then they, well, they're both into horses, but they go uh, on separate tracks all together. Um, and that's not a pun for James Corral, who's, you know, a jockey. Oh, listen to you, separate <laughs> tracks. Oh. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you got it. But anyway, um, James really didn't have a whole lot of a career in horses before he really got into them heavily. But Jamie Jackson is one of those students of the horse, and both of them defend on uh, depend on the horse's hoof uh, for their livelihood. Who oh, you're go, right. Go horse, no. Ooh, good one again. You're just <laughs> that, you're on okay, fire, right. Debbie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had a lot of fun in, um, introducing these guys to uh, the new audience, and uh, we've recorded them. And so I'd like to get right into them now, Jen, unless you want to stop me, hold me back. Oh, let's get into it. I can't wait to hear from, I haven't gotten to hear what uh, Jamie Jackson from Paddock Paradise has to say, but I am familiar with the concept and I'm very curious to hear what he has to say. Right after this word from IFA.com, we're going to hear from James Corral. Hi, I'm Mark Hebner, president of Index Fund Advisors and proud owner of Monty Roberts Willing Partners graduate, He's a Sugar Bear. (laughs) You know, investment portfolios are a lot like horses. You need to find one that best suits you, your temperament, and your stage of life. Some people might like an energetic horse and an aggressive investment portfolio, while others are more comfortable with a gentle ride and a more conservative investment portfolio. The trick is to find the one that's right for you. That's what Index Fund Advisors is all about, matching people with portfolios, risk-appropriate, low-cost, and globally diversified investment portfolios. You can find the right portfolio for you by taking the Risk Capacity Survey at ifa.com. That's IFA as an index fund advisors. Or you can call us toll-free at 888-643-3133. That's 888-643-3133. James Corral went from a young UCLA freshman 
who learned writing at Galway Downs in California, to becoming 1988's highest paid apprentice writer in Southern California and the winner of the Washington State's biggest stake, uh, a race at Long Acres. And he enjoyed a 12-year career writing alongside and being respected by some of the greats like Lafitte Pinkeye, Angel Cordero, Gary Stevens. And then he stayed in the business of racing. After uh, He helped trainers, and he's very skilled with his hands. He started a, a, a site called If These Shoes Could Talk. It's really clever. And he creates artwork with horseshoes. You're going to love him. Welcome, James Corral. What a perfect name for a jockey of the racetrack. How are you, James? Hi, Debbie. I'm doing fine. How's everything with you going? Oh, everything has been great. We, uh, we, uh, you are wonderful. Beginning of episode forty. What are we up to now? Let's see. We're up to episode forty-five of this, and I am so pleased to have you because we've not had a jockey on, a racing jockey on yet in Horsemanship Radio. And I, I want to introduce maybe people who are not that familiar with horse racing. Want to introduce them to you. You're a wonderful person and a and a advocate for the industry, a wonderful role model for the industry, and uh, the perfect person for me to bring on to talk a little bit about what goes on behind the scenes of racing and, and what it takes, the dedication it takes to be a jockey. Um, the one thing that I think people should know before you even jump in there is that there's very few disciplines uh, at this high level that expect a jockey or a horseman to jump on multiple horses every day that they've possibly never even ridden, certainly, you know, hadn't ridden a lot of because you get on and off horses all day long. What's that like for you, James? Well, I mean, uh, the, 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 the schedule that I was on would, first of all, being a jockey and with horses in general, but especially at the racetrack, it's a seven day a week job. There's, mm-hmm. The horses don't know it's Saturday or Sunday or Christmas or Easter. <laughs> they right. don't know what holiday it is. And so mm-hmm. it's an everyday thing. So so I work every day, every day. I get on somewhere from five to ten horses every morning, and then I ride whatever I'm going to ride in the afternoon. And so, um, yeah, that that's one of the big things that people who get that excitement, that energy, want to do that. that they, they have to understand that it's a seven-day-a-week job. Um, Absolutely. I, and yeah, and, and there were several times when, when, uh, when I would get on a horse in the afternoon that I had never seen, never seen or touched or sat on their back in the morning. And it's kind of interesting. So what, what I would kind of do, my general basics for a, let's say, quote unquote, a new horse is I would get on their back, of course, in the paddock, see how they're walking around. And, and what I, I always, I always did my petting a little down, down the main, just, just got a little, little scratching, see how, see how they're feeling, see what their reaction is. And mm-hmm. then, and then I would go for there. I would try to make some sort of, uh, uh, contact communication with the horse right when I got on him with, I mean, sometimes with my legs just dangling, forget the stirrups. Cause you saw some of the pictures, our stirrups are so jacked up so high. I mean, mm-hmm. I keep my feet out of the irons as often as, as long as possible until I have to okay. put them in. So I just become one with the horse. So, yeah, yeah that, that's basically it, especially new horses that I don't know. I try to make a, a communication, become one, see how they feel, see what they think about me as well. Yeah. Well, you're you're um, an amazing writer. You were featured in a DVD that I watched called Cup of Courage. And I think all jockeys, pound for pound, I think they're the most amazing athletes on earth because you're expected to um, subsist on practically no food. And and you're as strong as an ox. You have to be to, to do what you do hour after hour, uh, year after yeah, year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, no, so t- no, I was going to say yes, because, you know, it, we're the average rider is about 115 pounds and, and the, the thoroughbred is about 1,200 pounds. Mm-hmm. So it's a, you know, they're they're basically close to 10 times our size. That's right. Yeah, but but they're listening to you. I, I love watching horse racing and watching those ears twitch. And how much do you pay attention to um, the strategy of, getting through a race versus what your horse is feeding back to you as you're racing? Or is it a little bit of both or a lot of both? A little bit of both. I mean, you know, like, for example, let's, let's say we talked about horse, uh, what, what would I do to communicate, to get, come in contact with a horse that I haven't been on? Let's look at a horse that I have been on. 
Okay. If I know that it's a horse that 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 doesn't like to be pushed, doesn't like pressure, doesn't like wants to wants to feel like he's doing it his way, then I then I would I would get on the horse and and jump out of the gate and and not force not 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 do the push push kind of slowly kind of pick up his head and and let let him even though I'm asking him but on a very kind way let so he 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 he's feeling like he's doing what he wants to do without mm-hmm. pushing him now there's other horses that I might might be on a speedball that thinks that he's a quarter horse I mean a a, a dragster <laughs> rather oh, yeah. coming out of the gate <laughs> and I just got to hang on to a lot of mane and make sure I'm not sitting in the gate and hit, have him leave me in the gate. So yeah. I just <laughs> have to be prepared for, 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 for what that horse would feel comfortable doing, what his, his or her comfort is uh, uh, of running is what their style would be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, you have been, uh, alongside in races with some of the greats, Lafitte Pink Eye. Uh, we mentioned, um, uh, I wrote about, about 200 races. Angel with Cordero. 200 races. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. W- w- at the end of his career, I wrote about 200 races with Shoemaker. I probably wrote about a thousand races with Gary Stevens oh, and gosh, Chris McCarron, yeah. Eddie Delahousse, Lafitte. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I got, very very lucky. I've, I I'm so happy I got to ride with those guys. Those guys are my I, I mentors. Bet. Well, I would think you, they learned from you as well. I mean, you guys were all being competitive. I know every guy out there wants to win the race and be on the best horse, but um, I'm sure they learned from you as well. So you raced um, in mostly the West Coast, but Louisiana right. too, right? Yeah. Yes, correct. And, correct. Yeah. What's your favorite race uh, race track to go to? Well, let me tell you. In Southern California, I, in my career, as far as career goes, I did my best at Hollywood Park. I did really well. I finished sixth in the, in the standings and I just was, was a, a, a very, 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 I don't know how else to say it. I, I was a hot rider. Yeah. As an apprentice <laughs> at, at, at Hollywood Park. Yeah. I was, uh, but, but as far as the, the, the whole track and I, I, I do love Santa Anita. Santa Anita is, uh, is, is beautiful. Yeah. I mean, even with the mountains in the background and all the, it, I mean, it's just, it's enjoyable. It's good, good for the, the, the general public can, can go up and see the, the in the paddock and in, it's just, it's just a lot of fun in all, in all, uh, all ways of looking at it from the mm-hmm. public to the yeah. riders to the horses to the, you know, just the whole the whole picture. I I love Hollywood. I mean, Santa Anita. But Santa when it Anita. came to riding, I, I was a I was a I was a hot little bug boy at Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> That's an um, apprentice because you you right, won probably more than yeah you you were a top uh, you won more money than any apprentice the year that you apprenticed. I, I finished fourth in the bug nation. Boy. I finished there fourth in the nation. Yeah, yeah. As top a, in as Southern a, California. Apprentice, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. I was I was a top in California. Yes. Um, but when it, getting back to the races, the race tracks, I loved racing in Seattle. And I know, I know that you told you were there uh, a few days ago. I loved Long Acres. Long Acres was, was so much fun. I was there for three seasons and, um, I did really well up there. I, I won the biggest race of my career was up in Seattle. I won the Long Acres mile in 1990. And that was my biggest, uh, the biggest race that I ever won, the purse for that race was 300,000. And it's the, the way you can kind of compare it, uh, the Kentucky Derby that year was 750,000 and it's, it's 1.5 now. It's it's one and a half million now. What horse, what horse were you on, on that race? I was on a horse named Snip Ledoux and and I rode him six times at that meet and we won all six. So I was six for six on that horse. That owner is happy with you. Did he have yes. the same owner the whole time? Yeah. Yes. Uh huh. Yep. Okay. Yeah. The owner actually claimed him for, and it and it went. It was the 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 new record, the highest claim of of the history of of uh, uh, the state of Washington. It was a sixty thousand dollar claim, and he claimed him for sixty thousand. Ran second, then then ran him in an allowance race, and they put me on him. We won, and then we won uh, five stakes after that. Good so we, I won that's, an allowance and then five stake races. Yeah, that's that's tough to do in case people don't yeah, know much yeah. about racing. That's tough to do. So tell me how a, a UCLA freshman, that's uh, 
California, University of California at Los Angeles. How does a UCLA uh, freshman end up a jockey shortly after that? Well, let me tell you what happened. It's kind of an interesting story. Um, I, I went to UCLA, and I was not a big fan of school, I, I, but I was just doing what, quote-unquote, Dad said. My father was a, a, a Superior Court judge in Los Angeles, <laughs> and he wanted me to go to law school and become a lawyer like he was. And so I was just kind of doing what Dad said. And I was I I was going to UCLA. I worked at the small claims department, the 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 um, the court building. He got me a side job there. So, but the man that ran that department during lunchtime, he wouldn't go have lunch. He would run to Hollywood Park and bet. <laughs> so, so that was the manager of your thing. You imagine this of a court building. He would yeah, not great. go to lunch. He'd, he'd go bet. <laughs> so he kept on telling me, "You got to be a jockey. You got to be a jockey." I said, "Yeah." All right. So what he did was he put a package together for all the employees from the court building to go watch the races at Santa Anita. And we went one time and I loved it. And I said, yeah, I'd like to do that. So I went from living in a beautiful house in Westwood to I moved to Temecula. I lived in a tack room for nine months at Kingsway Farm <laughs> next to That's Galloway great. Downs to learn how mm-hmm. to ride. And so mm-hmm. I, I lived there for nine, nine months learning to ride and then uh, got my first job as an exercise rider. Uh, at Santa Anita, and I and who taught you to ride? Who, Pardon me. Who taught you to ride? Uh, uh, Terry Payne at Kingsway Farm, and he still he still runs Kingsway Farm, and I bump into him occasionally, and we laugh and we tell stories, and he asks me how I'm doing, and uh, yeah, but Terry Payne uh, really took me under his wing, and he and he showed me how to how, he taught me how to ride. It was, it was really yeah. it was it was amazing. I got to give him a. Uh, uh, tip, tip the hat to, to Terry Payne because he's yeah, that's a shout out, shout out for yeah, that. Shout that's out, amazing. Shout out for Terry. Yeah, now yeah. you took a you you did take a dive, um, and it wasn't ironically on a horse. So you did have some head injuries, um, right. but it was in a car accident, and and uh, you'd never know it. I, I met you a couple weeks ago, <laughs> and um, you're as healthy as a horse. Pardon the expression, but. Yeah. Um, Tell us a little bit about the comeback because I think it's inspirational. Well, what happened was, I mean, I, uh, here's something that, that that I like to tell people about about jockeys, and that's um, the average statistically, the average rider goes down three times a year, and usually mm-hmm. they get the dirt out of their ears. They pay, kind of take some of the dirt out of the boot and and continue to ride. But the statistic is one out of every seven is a bad one, meaning a broken bone, uh, a torn ligament, uh, something where you have to take. Where they basically like like or they have to turn us out and let us go graze for a few months and then we can come yeah. back something like that. <laughs> so so um uh you know I've had I had several setback accidents. I broke my my right knee once, my left knee twice. I broke my back going over the rail at Santa Anita in a race. Um, I I I broke several. I've had surgery on my shoulder, my right shoulder, my left ankle. So I've had so many uh breaks where I had to put my career on pause. Um, but when I was making another comeback, I was supposed to race at Santa Anita. I was driving to work one morning, got on the freeway. And as I'm getting on the freeway, there was a lady running across the freeway on her feet. And, and this was at quarter to five in the morning. It was very dark. Mm. I was supposed to be on my first horse at six. I mean, at five thirty that morning. And, and so I swerved to miss her. I hit her and I flew off the freeway. I broke my skull in five places. Uh, one eighth of my brain is dead, and that has to do with speaking and uh, short-term memory. So, mm-hmm. and then um, to make a long story short, you know, they they when they found her body, they tested her. If I had any drugs or alcohol in my system, I would probably be in jail for manslaughter or whatever. Mm-hmm. They tested me; I was clean. I had nothing. I was just going to work. They found mm-hmm. her body, and she had a high dosage of of heroin and, and drugs and, and alcohol in her system. So mm. anyway, so I, I, I was, um, in the hospital. I, I, they weren't sure whether I was going to make it. And after I was in and out of a coma for the first four days, my family brought a priest in to read my rites of passage thinking I was mm. not going to make it. So they did that. It took about two hours and they, they said about maybe one or two hours after that, I sat up in my bed and I started trying to talk. And they were looking at each other. They they thought a miracle had happened. So I was mm. in the hospital for about two more weeks. And then it was the beginning of a long road of recovery. I couldn't talk. I was like a a two-year-old boy slurring 
Um, I didn't know how to say anything. So I had to go to speech therapy for six months to learn how to talk, to learn how to remember, to learn how to lots of things. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, um, so once after a few months, when I started catching on, I started remembering, you know, horses. And then I started to get that, that hunger, and that urge. And I said, man, boy, I want to get back on horses again. And so after, after about seven or eight months from the accident, um, I started getting on horses again. I started exercising horses and, and, and I, and I, I felt kind of, I was not totally comfortable, but I just wanted to, I wanted to, to get that feel again. I wanted to do it again. And so I, I, people were uh, talking to me, wanted to help me out. And so I, I told everybody, I want to ride. I want to, I want to ride again. I think I can ride again. So here I was making another comeback probably my 15th comeback in my career. <laughs> and uh, and so I, I started riding. I rode a few races, and then boom, I, I won on a, uh, the first horse I won on at Santa Anita. The horse's name was Give Me Hope. Oh, that's great. And I won on Give Me Hope. And then, then I came back, and I rode a few more races. And and then maybe a few months later, I mean, I was not riding a lot. I, you know, could come close, second, third. And then I just... For some reason, there was something inside of me that was that was almost like I had the feel of like I was not giving it that quote unquote. I hope it's okay to say this. That balls out. Uh, <laughs> we know what out, that means. Yeah, that's um, right. <laughs> riding style, right. and so so I said, well, you know, maybe maybe I shouldn't ride because I w- I felt almost guilty for not for maybe not giving the owner, the trainer or the racetrack or the people betting or anybody that full, uh, uh, no fear, uh, attitude of riding. And I was kind of hesitating a little bit. So I said, you know what? I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to stop riding. So I rode a few more races and then guess who pops up again? Give me hope. I rode her and I win again. I I won two races on give me hope. And then, and then, and then I rode a few more races. I said, you know what? I'm done. I, 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 after I won on her uh, about two weeks later, I rode a few races. I said, I'm done. I'm happy. And so what I did was I, I just felt inside me. I said, you know what? I'm retiring now. And I felt so good that it was my decision, not, not the hospital's decision or not, not, it was my own decision to say it's time for me to hang up my helmet. And, and I, and I, and I feel like I did the right thing. And I love horses. Yeah. Yeah. What a blessing that you've been able to kind of stay in the industry though, too. Um, I would feel, I would feel, um, like you did sell out if you had not stayed with the horses, but you did tell us a little bit about, yeah. Post-riding. Well, what I did, I, 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 once I, once I made it very clear, which it's kind of an interesting, uh, 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 thought about that what happened as soon as because I was a jockey this whole time and then once I made it very clear to everybody that I'm I'm retiring I'm not going to ride anymore in the afternoon but I wanted to continue to get on horses boy it was an amazing exciting like big time trainers Richard Mandela uh, uh, Bobby Frankel um, uh, the just the list went on and on Eddie Gregson I mean, all of them. Uh, Charles Whittingham. Trainers, top trainers, Jack Vanberg. Everybody started asking me to work their horses. I only weighed 110 pounds, and they wanted a light rider who they didn't weren't obligated to have to race in the afternoon to ride their horse. Mm-hmm. So I was like a little pinball bouncing around. Everybody wanted me to work their horses because <laughs> now they knew they didn't have to ride me. Right, so, so that right. Was, that, that was kind sense. of fun. Yeah. That was kind of fun. I was I had never been so busy in the morning at the racetrack. <laughs> which was kind That's of fun. Great. So I got to get yeah. on a lot of horses. I got I got to sit on um Darren Go when he beat Cigar. Gosh, I man. I got I got to I got to get on a lot of big horses that I had I been a jockey I would have never had a chance to sit on their backs. Mm-hmm. So that was that was a kind of a good thing. And yeah, then what I did was really... yeah, what I did was uh I started a little hobby um while while I was exercising horses, I started to um just doodle around with the horseshoes and that's what got started my new business which i which uh six years ago i started and and uh i do things with horseshoes now and and that and i slowly stopped getting on horses which i miss but but uh um like going back to the story i 
I've had my share of nine lives. I think I probably had more than nine lives. Maybe more. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm happy. I kind of retired fairly sound. Occasionally, I'm a little off, but, you know, you know, you're pretty sound. I'm pretty sound. <laughs> good I, I, yeah, I want to brag on you a little bit about this so that you don't have to, but you make these beautiful bridle racks and trophies and things out of the shoes that are actually from the horses in a lot of cases. Um, and if, if they go to your Facebook page, that's a lot of fun. It's uh, James Corral. And if you just go to Facebook.com and look at James Corral, you'll see John Henry. You'll see Bob Baffert. And, uh-oh, American Pharaoh. There's some current news. Beautiful, yeah, beautiful stuff. Nice. Is that fun? I mean, that must be a fun little hobby to have on the side. Oh, it's great. Uh, you know, I've, I've done four Kentucky Derby horses. I got their shoes. The first one that I did, I got to do was mine that bird. I got his Kentucky yeah. Derby shoes. Awesome. And I made four individual trophies with his derby shoes. Mm-hmm. I did, um, for Bob Baffert, you know, the horse looking at Lucky. He yeah. did not win the Kentucky Derby, but when he was named three-year-old of the year, um, Baffert gave me his derby shoes, and I made trophies as three-year-old of the year, but with his Kentucky Derby shoes. Uh-huh. I did Street Sense. I made a trophy for Street Sense. I did mm-hmm. a trophy with All Have Another's shoes. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so I'm just, uh, I've done several Breeders' Cup uh, trophies. I did um, a Golden Sense. I've done two years of Golden Sense's trophies. I uh, just I just uh, shipped a beautiful trophy that I made for uh, it's a horse named Absolutely Cool, who just ran in Seattle at Emerald Downs. But mm-hmm. I did his, he, when he won the Phoenix Gold Cup for the second year in a row, defending champion. I made the the trophy for him last year, and so I made, just shipped another trophy to the owner of this year's uh, defending champion. So I, I love I do that all name. Kinds Absolutely of cool. Yeah, yeah, you sure do. You should do. People have to go in and see that. And what a great way to stay in the industry a little bit too. You do beautiful work, and it's probably therapeutic, fun to do that with all these <laughs> famous famous horses and everything. Is people have to have to enjoy it with you and, or maybe even think of something that they need to do for Christmas yeah. time. Here too. Go uh, one ahead, go one, one thing that I would like to say, and it's something that I do a lot and, and I'll tell you, I love my work. There's nothing like, like doing something and seeing the smile on somebody's face that I do something with their shoes. But one of the things that hits me the hardest, it hits my heart the deepest is when people, I mean, horses to horse, horse people are, are their children. And mm-hmm. occasionally when they lose their child, so they get. I do quite a few memorials. Oh, memorials are big with me, and mm-hmm. and it, every time I deliver a memorial plaque that I've done for somebody, I mean I've gotten so many hugs, and it, I'm talking not only from the the women. Sometimes the men give me yeah. a hug and just just squeeze the heck out of me. I'm a little like <laughs> you; they can squeeze me like a little prune, but but you know they they just love my work, especially with memorials. I, oh, I, I just great. yeah, I love that. Well, we love you, James. You're you're a talented guy, and uh, you can tell that you love your horses and you love the industry, and we need more representatives of the industry like you. It was wonderful having you on today, and I, I hope you'll agree to come on again when you have some fun news for us. Um, we're really excited because Sean's Omega Fields company has done something amazing for one of our test horses. His name is Cadillac. And we felt so strongly about it that um, we definitely wanted to bring him on as a sponsor of Horsemanship Radio. And we wanted you to know that it came in that um, order first is that we were so impressed with this product and with this horse's results that we wanted to have him a part of our um, our monthly shows. What is it about the Omega Fields product? Something's different. Omega Fields uh, was built around a really um, unique and proprietary technology. Flaxseed has been known for a long time to contain rich source of omega-3 fatty acids along with omega-6 and omega-9 fatty acids in, the, in a near-perfect balance, but historically there was a problem using it. It's high in fat, and when it was uh, milled into a feed product or a food product, it, it would go rancid very quickly, so our company had developed a proprietary technology for stabilizing this high-fat flaxseed to make it usable, uh, give it a long shelf life in a natural uh, environment. We don't use any chemicals or 
additives to extend the shelf life or anything like that. It's a completely natural process. That's what makes our flax really different. Um, it makes it usable. It makes it nutritious over a long period of time. We guarantee an 18-month shelf life, so consumers can use it with confidence without it going rancid that you know would potentially harm the horse. So quality of manufacture, every single thing in that uh, product, Omega Horse Shine, is food grade. It's made at a food grade facility with great care of product quality. Uh, the stabilization technology makes that omega-3 uh, nutrition, nutritional value locked in and usable for a long period of time. So proof is in the pudding, so to speak, that it, it really works. You'll see dramatic results in a fairly short period of time. Jamie Jackson is a 40-year veteran hoof care professional, author, researcher, and a noted expert on both wild and domestic horses. He's a pioneer in the practice of natural hoof care, and Jamie wrote, first after studying wild horses in the U.S. Great Basin, wrote a book called The Natural Horse, Lessons from the Wild in 1992. Uh, Jamie Jackson resides in Central California and continues to maintain a trimming and a rehabilitation clientele. In 2009, Jackson and Jill Willis created and managed the Institute for the Study of Natural Horse Care Practices, a training program for national, natural hoof care practitioners. Welcome, Jamie Jackson. I'm honored to have you on this show. How are you today? Very good. My pleasure to be here. <laughs> well, it, it really is our pleasure because I, I can't wait to introduce some of the things that you've done in your long career to a lot of listeners who think, boy, what am I going to do with my horse when I want to go to this natural care and I'm starting to get a feel for what um, horses in the wild really are like? How, how do I recreate that? It feels like you're kind of starting to answer that for, for those that are listening. Would you describe what you do for people? Well, um, what I uh, recommend to people is in part based upon my observations of horses in the wild from 1982 to 1986, <clears throat> <Excuse me. clears throat> and uh, I uh, try to translate what they're doing in the wild into, into ways that would be useful or applicable for people who own horses back here in the civilization. Right. So um, that's a, that's a big story, uh, right there in itself. Uh, you range from things like diet to how you feed them to uh, how you house them, uh, mm-hmm. how you take care of the hooves, and uh, things like that. Right. Which is your attempt to tell us or translate for us what a horse really should be living like in a natural environment. Now. I I imagine that back in what would you say the earliest your earliest writing was what ninety two. You're an author. Yes. Uh huh. I what, wrote the the natural horse uh, lessons from the wild. Uh, actually, wrote that in the nineteen eighties, and it was published in nineteen ninety two. Perfect. Um, uh, that would be my first <clears throat> yeah. published book on the subject. That's amazing. I mean, ninety two. Tell me what people were pushing back on then. Were there skeptics? Um, I think that, uh, there was people who would, you know, listen, listen to what I had to say or read what I had to say. There was a, a bit of interest and, uh, you know, I began as a farrier. So the, uh, the ferry committee actually brought this information before them back in 1988 mm-hmm. at the annual conference of the American Fair Association. We talked about the hooves and I showed them wild horse, uh, Biospecimens, their hooves, so they could see what they look like, and there was a lot of a uh, lot of interest. But uh, how do you uh, how do you apply it? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, it's always been the the issue of how do we take this information and utilize it uh, in a way that will, will help horses. Right, exactly. So you went into natural hoof care uh, primarily at first, and then eventually got into diet and behaviors of horses. Is that right? Well, when I when I first went out there in 1982 into the Great Basin, I really didn't know for sure what to expect. But what I found was uh, quite beautiful, and I thought uh, meaningful. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's kind of a funny story. When I first came back, and uh, I 
and had a clue about what the hose, I had a clue what the hose was supposed to look like. And I told one of my clients, why don't we do a, I'm going to do a wild horse trim. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and she just sort of shrieked (laughs) and said, Oh, I don't want anything wild on my horse. (laughs) And so I sort of took me back and I thought about it and I, and that's how I came up with the term, the natural trim. I thought yeah. I would not, wild was unacceptable, so I used the term natural. <laughs> thought you would start bucking around the field if you put that wild <laughs> trim on there. <laughs> right. That's funny. Yeah. So well, uh, as so I you, began to study the hoof more and more uh-huh. and more, uh, and, and then the wild, that led me into how to, how is the hoof forged like that in the wild so that got me into behavior, uh, how they move, what they eat, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and the on the hooves, which I, to me is actually as as fascinating as the diet. But I want to get to, into that too. The Mustang roll has always been the most amazing hoof to me, and that is. W- would you describe a Mustang roll for us? And and I'd like to hear how you describe it. The the Mustang roll. It's a, a term I actually coined way way back. It's been so many years I can't remember how long ago, but right. uh, it it what it reflects is uh, is how the the turn of the wall instead of you know when when as a shoer you flatten the hoof and you nail the shoe onto it mm-hmm. so you have this sort of a sharp edge mm-hmm. and in the wild horse foot it's it's rounded now it's rounded in a very complex way it's not a real simple thing there are structures there that need to be ordered you know put in order when you're uh, finished when you're turning it. So, so I had to come up with, a, with, with something that would uh, explain that it's just not flat. It's mm-hmm. rounded in a particular way. So I, thought, I took the term Mustang and roll and I'll make it a Mustang roll. So it reflects specifically how the wall is turned rather than what the whole hoof is about. Yeah. Can you describe a little bit um, for what it looks like. I mean, it, it literally looks like, um, I'm trying to think of some object that people would, would know, like the edge of a countertop is, you know, when it's got the bull nose on it, it's kind of, isn't it kind of, <laughs> I'm trying to think of something like, it. but it, it is, it's naturally formed and that's because of those capsules. Am I, am I right on that? How they the, tease it, the, teased by we, the dirt? We, we, we think that, um, Thinking, my thinking, to back way back in the 1970s when I began as a farrier in the 1980s, and even into the future, uh, people think of the hoof breaking over the toe, sort of the direction of the toe that goes over. Mm-hmm. And if 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 that were true, if that's exactly how it worked, then then I would expect to find what we call roll toe, mm-hmm. right? And so, but I didn't find that. Right. The Mustang roll goes all the way around foot and then I, I realized that uh the hoof and I could see it just from my observations out there is that the hoof lands and, and you know and takes off in different directions so it makes sense that it would be rounded uh all you know, the Mustang roll will go all the way around mm-hmm. rather than just to the front. And uh so the my practice as a failure to roll the toe came to an end when I saw that mm-hmm. that it needs to be the same all the way around. Mm-hmm. That, that would be consistent with what nature is, uh, you know, done for the for the horse. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What what God put in there as as a, a natural trim, uh, not a wild trim, but a natural trim. <laughs> right. So, so what what I love too. So, so you're a natural hoof trimmer, like trimmer. Yeah. And you've you are working with the the wild horse foot to try to emulate that. Now tell me about the frog, because I saw the most, when we were out on your place, the most beautiful frog, which was probably the biggest, flattest frog that you can imagine on a hoof. And, uh, (laughs) right. right? And it looks like a perfect heart. It is so adorable. It looks like a heart. So tell me how that happens in the natural hoof. The, when you do a natural trim, which is different than uh, than what you do to prepare the hoof for a shoe, okay? It uh, it but what, what it does when you when you begin to uh, simulate the 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 wild horse foot, the, the wear characteristics, it sort of activates the foot to grow a particular way. Okay. And and then when you put them in the environment, uh, like 
our place that you came out to see, which we, I call paddock paradise, right. then it really pressures the foot to, to grow like you see out in the wild, to, okay. to grow and to wear a particular way. And so the frog that you saw, the frogs on those horses, I've really not trimmed them in four years. Wow. They, they reach what I call, I call it biodynamically balanced in relation to the environment. That means that it's, it grows what it needs, so to speak, to protect mm-hmm. itself. And so the frog, uh, the frogs that you saw are very neat and well-formed, um, it does that on its own. Right. Okay, I don't, I don't do that at all. It, it grows into that and stays there. <laughs> That's the best so way what's, to describe it. Yeah, what's, yeah, yeah, I believe you. And, and what causes that? What, what's the concussion going on? I mean, we've heard um, it said that the horse has five hearts and that the frog being the fifth heart, that's what's pumping back up the leg, all that, um, that blood that needs to get down there and feed that hoof. So what, what is it that teases the hoof? Is it the, the, the rocks and the wear and tear, the movement of the horse? Well, the uh, the model that you're referring to, the uh, frog pressure model, is, uh, yeah. I think that began back in, in Europe and came to the United States uh, as the fairy sciences sort of developed here in the United States, modeled okay. after old European models, okay? Okay. And the, you know, as I've, there's new science, more recent science that says that the there's very a very complex uh, uh, vascular system in the hoof with various shunts and things moving move blood around in there, so it builds enormous pressure inside. Okay, yeah. when, so okay. we're talking about a weight bearing force, the horse's weight coming down and squeezing yeah. all this blood inside the. Uh, you have a hydraulic system in effect. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. And so I think that's why they could be so comfortable running around a rock the way they do in the wild or in our paddock paradise because right. they're in a waterbed, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> standing in there, okay. And uh, so it's the weight bearing force that presses the hoof against the ground. And that's actually what does the shaping. Gotcha. Okay. okay. All right. Rather than the ground, which is just sort of sitting there, you know, that not makes doing sense. anything. When you have yeah. this weight pushing down on it, then you're going to be grinding it. And and, uh, and when you mimic the natural shape of the, of the wild horse foot, then it begins to activate the growth, uh, the, the, the growth corams, the growth centers in the, in the, in the nerves and the blood and all that. And it makes mm-hmm. it want to grow a particular way. And this is what you saw out there in our, in our hooves. Well, that's great. Yeah. Okay. So this is, this is really good. So this is science and this is, actual reality too that you've you've actually seen it there's so much so much of science that we horse people wonder about but you're seeing this for now years 40 years you've been a horse care professional so so um there there must be a need to get this word out that um teasing these hooves into a more natural uh, growth pattern has got to be healthier for the horses because I just feel like there's a lot of industries that are having trouble with, with keeping horses sound these days. Am I wrong? You're not wrong at all. And uh, it's, I would characterize it as an epidemic problem, an international mm-hmm. one. Wow. Um, this is something that I've studied, you know, and uh, in, in fact, uh, Many, many years ago, back in the 1970s, uh, I was seeing problems uh, not only in my own work as a, as a fairy, but in just about everybody's. And this is one of the main um, things that inspired me to go into the wild to see, is there a better way to... Certainly nature wouldn't give us this horse and make a huge mistake. Yeah. <laughs> after, you know, and so... Uh, when I went out there, then I, that's why I discovered that there's there's definitely a better way. Nature's figured it out, and there's thousands and thousands and thousands of horses out there, and they don't have any problems with their feet, mm-hmm. none. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the question then is, why? Oh yeah, good. And then and what do we do? What can we? That's do great. It? You know, that's this is how um, founding people. They, they, you know, I, my father Monty Roberts. You know, did 
the unusual and kind of just kept at his belief. It, and I really feel like you're one of those that just kept after his belief as well because it worked. You saw it working, and I so admire yeah. that. Now, let, let's jump to Paddock Paradise and your property out there too because this goes – I wanted to establish um, what I think a lot of people are paying attention to, which is uh, you know hoof care and, and problems that way. But But there's a bigger – a bigger issue with the world getting smaller. And on Horsemanship Radio, we like to advocate for keeping horses in people's lives. We we don't want to see it slipping the other way. Um, we just think they're too valuable as as, uh, as therapy, if nothing else. That's what we sure. call it. Anyway, we justify our horses for therapy, um, meaning that I need my horsey time. <laughs> but we, <laughs> we, we want to keep them closer because we think, you know, that they're really important to um, our, our future. And you have also found that um, a small piece of property is can do a lot more for a horse than just be a pasture. So tell us, describe a little bit about Paddock Paradise, and maybe we can, in another show, even get into it more because there's just so much to it. But if you could describe what it looks like a little bit and why you've gone to that concept, um, I think people really need to pay attention. The like the hoof, my inspiration for Paddock Paradise <clears throat> came from uh, the way I saw horses travel in the wild, and and a lot of other species do as well. The same thing; they move on paths. They move on paths from one place to the next. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And typically in pecking order. Okay. Okay. And uh, and so uh, the. I realized early on uh, in the early 1980s that that I had to draw a line to the environment from the hoof. You can't just try and make the hoof look nice, okay? Yeah. It has to be, okay. you know, the horse has to be in the right environment. And so this became a problem yeah. with everywhere I went uh, as a shoer that the environment was creating problems. So eventually, uh, I began to talk about that they move around in paths to, to, to go here to eat, to get these minerals here, to get water there, to see other horses, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And and people didn't understand what I was saying. Yeah, the was, the circle so of alien. life. Yeah, yeah they, they don't. The deer do it, and 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 every I think every flight animal has a circle that they travel in, but I don't know that people, uh, you know, are aware of that. So. I'm glad you're pushing. So, so in, in the wild, the water hole is like the the center, mm-hmm. and then and then horses go out from there to get what they need, and they come back. Mm-hmm. Go out and they come back in loops. Okay, and so I began to talk about that to people who are coming to me to learn about what this wild thing is all about and taking care of the hooves. But it was a it was a particular with with inspired me to write the book specifically to, to bring it out of me and to put it in book form so others could, could use the information was a horse in Georgia had found it, had laminitis, and the people were just at wit's end what to do, and they had the horse in an environment that was conducive to laminitis. So they came out did a clinic with me, and I said, well, you know, we need to make some changes there. You've got your horse in a, in a very lush pasture, which is going to, because of the, sh- the sugar, the fruit can in the grass, is going to cause the hooves to become laminitic, okay? Mm-hmm. And so uh, we sat there, the wife and the husband and I, and, and I said, this is what it looks like. Let's take your pasture and let's create a track, I call it, all around your property, and within the track, they will create paths where they want to go. Okay. And so the husband's very practical. He's had a tractor, and they set right to work on it. And uh, and we, in the meantime, we put the horse in just a small little pen with no grass at all. And I began to and I advise them how the horse should be fed so that they will not get laminitis. Okay. And so they put the horse, all three of the horses, on the track, and off they went. And uh, the horse became not only sound, but rideable, and and whatever signs of laminitis were there just came to an end very quickly. 
Mm, okay. And and then they they brought their neighbors' horses over to put them in there, and they all took off together. And uh, mm-hmm. and there's another lesson: horses need to be together. They're social. Okay. They're, uh, you, you know, band animals. You know, they like to be in family bands and small yeah. groups. And uh, I I know what people they, are thinking right now. They're thinking though, like, how do I get? You know, I, I'm at an equestrian center, or I you know I have such limited space and property. Uh, you know, I would love to turn my horse out and, you know, 50 acres. I think it'd be terrific. Well, it might be hard to catch him every day. But, you know, how, how, did, how did you deal with that next step? Of course, you don't need 50 acres to do it. Good. That's what I want to If you had a 50-acre 50, 50 property, you would probably use less than 5% of it. Oh, see, there you go. Right. Okay. So, it's, uh, so uh, when I wrote the book, finally, Paddock Paradise, mm-hmm. um, a guide to natural horse boarding. I pointed this out that that a lot of people have some very suitable property, but don't use it in a way that would be, uh, you know, conducive to natural movement and how you yeah. feed them and so on and so forth. So the book sort of answers that question. <laughs> yeah. How do we? How do we? Let's look at our property in a different what way. Is it? Yes, exactly. How do we how okay. do we capture that that circular movement that horses want to do every day? How do we capture the, that? The property that you came out to say, where that that is a one mile loop around it, but the property is not even eight acres. Yeah, that there we're you occupying. Go. Okay, it's it's a, so uh, the 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 track can be run, you know, here and there in different places, and uh, and as you know, we we stage the feeding areas along the track. So the horses are eating in different places mm-hmm. and, uh, and then they've got right their their water hole where they go to, to drink. <laughs> right. And, uh, and so paddock paradise is about providing opportunities, uh, to behave a particular way like they do in the wild. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we have a, a, you know, like where do, what are horses, what do they want to sleep on? Well, I saw what they did in the wild. Okay. So we created an area there in our paddock paradise, the sand pit, we call it. The sand pit. Yeah, go, that's cool. They go there every morning at 10 o'clock. You can set your watch to it. Okay. And they lay down in there and they go to sleep. So we should describe it. It's like a bowl shaped bit in the sand that you've really dug it out though so they can really get down in there and scratch and do their thing. And and you say the wild horses did that? They they dug those in the wild? Oh yes. Uh-huh. Of course they have even more than that. They have rolling areas, bathing areas, you know, they yeah. they have yeah. different things. So we've sort of uh provided them with an area where they can go and roll and sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And uh, roll into one there, and uh, so we brought, you know, our, our, our as you saw, our, our track is all rock, mm-hmm. so we, we had to dig that out. We brought in a bunch of sand and poured it in there for them, and they immediately went to work on it to mm-hmm. turn it into a bed. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, funny. And and one of the things you said that I th- I found so interesting is that you you made a trench and you put. Uh, like those that loose gravel that they put under road beds at, uh, as they're building roads, you put that in a very narrow. I I, I don't know what is it about uh, eight or ten inches wide, maybe more. What what is that track that you put around there with the rocks in it? Actually, the the track where the horses go out mm-hmm. <clears throat> go out on is it's just that that whole mountain is just rock. So we right. didn't have to, but they ground oh. out a path that you I saw on there was about I a foot see. wide, right? And so the, and, and you'll see this uh, in the wild. There's like a, an indentation in the ground <laughs> where the path yeah. is. Okay, so and like they, a deer trail. So they created that, right? I see. So and, you're and, saying to, and, you could simulate that, though, if, if people didn't have rocky territory, they could. Absolutely. Okay, so there we go. There for, we go. For example, in some areas where it rains a lot and it's muddy, Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, what do we do? Because it's a big uh, mud hole, right? So, uh, I actually met with a Lompoc road engineer for the city of Lompoc, and uh, we went. We talked about it, and he says, "Oh, this is simple to solve. We do it all the time." Mm-hmm. And he took me out to a park, and what you do is you dig a trench 
and they, you know, you can get a trenching tool, you can rent one and, mm-hmm. uh, and just walk behind it. It'll dig out the dirt and about eight inches deep and no more than a foot wide. And then you put road gravel in there. Yeah. There we go. It's the cheapest material you can buy for, it should be. for making it. <laughs> and you put it in there, you do this in the summer yeah. and then the horses will start walking on it because they'll want to, right? Uh-huh. Because it's sort of in their DNA to walk in hard ground. Okay. They yeah. want to do that. And they'll start tamping that down so it doesn't forms like a gravel road. So, for example, people in England who have this problem, I've advised them to go ahead and and just uh, trench a, a path and the horses will stay on it. And some people just do the whole track, which is, you know, 10 foot wide, maybe wider than other places. They'll just you know, put, put a gravel road for the horses to walk on. You can do that. Mm-hmm. You don't need to. And the other thing is that horses can walk in the mud. It's okay. In wild horse country, it's, it snows mm-hmm. up there, rains, it's muddy. They'll walk around the mud for a month mm-hmm. longer. So uh, the mud really doesn't cause, I mean, there's, there's another little myth out there is that mud causes thrush. Okay. Yeah. And if that were true, then you'd have nothing but thrush in wild horse country because they walk around in the mud enough that would cause it if that were the case. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So... Z- so what prevents the thrush? You're saying that that movement through through the environment is it's the standing still think, that creates the thrush. Yeah, I think that thrush is uh, this is my opinion, and it's after 40 years of looking at the problem, okay. is really based on diet and uh, uh-huh. exacerbated by unnatural boarding conditions. Okay? Yeah, yeah, that makes so, sense to me. Uh, and you say we didn't have any thrush. And those horses out there, right? No. The frogs are just as clear and clean and hard as a rock, right? We'll, yeah, we'll put a picture and, uh, up of that. We'll put a picture of that because it, it it's a beautiful hoof if you, if you like hoof. <laughs> um, I do. So obviously. But, you know, one other funny thing that you said um, was that the horses don't like you to walk on their track. They prefer that you, when you walk along the roads, when you put the hay nets up, and that's another thing we'll have to get into on another show, but um, okay. that they prefer that you, that they walk on their track and you walk on your track. Is, is that just your horses? Or is that, is that a behavior? It's, it's the way they are. They know mm-hmm. where they want to go. And so their paths are, uh, they put them where they want. And typically it's away from, from where I bring the, the ranger to go up there to put the hay and you saw that's off to the side. I did yeah. a little experiment on that down below. They had a path going from the rolling, the sleeping area, the rolling area, down to the water trough. Mm-hmm. And the, and they would, and that path was just as clear as can be. That's the way they want to do it. That's where they're going to go. So I did a little experiment, and I brought out the the ranger and a drag behind it, and I just ground that that path away mm-hmm. completely. Okay. You couldn't see it, right? Mm-hmm. The next morning, it was there. Mm-hmm. And I mean, right to where it was before, ex- down to the foot. That's funny. And I thought, this isn't this something. It's that. Yeah. They know what they want. Yep. And yep. Uh, and you saw they have their paths all over up in there. Yep, and I they, did. It's they, they created them. And uh, and they can express their displeasure if you force them off of them. <laughs> you know, they... Right? <laughs> I love it. I I, I love what you're doing, Jamie. I really love what you're doing is studying the horse first and then building the world around them that we can. I mean, everybody's got their limitations and I'm sure there's some people just drooling to see Paddock Paradise on your website. And uh, (laughs) where would you like them to go to see some of the work you do? I know that you you and Jill Willis uh, created and managed the Institute for the Study of Natural Horse Care Practition, Practices. Sorry, um, And okay. what's the website that you, you want people to go to? Um, the, well, the, the ISNHCP, as we call it, the acronym for the Institute, is, is our training program for people who, are, uh, who want to do this sort, sort of work. Okay. They can go there. Okay. Um, they can go to our sort of parent organization, the AANHCP, which is the Association for the Advancement of Natural Horse Care Practices. We and so it's AANHCP.net, and you can okay. see that. And then the, the Facebook, Facebook for Paddock Paradise. Oh, perfect! Uh, that's a good one. Okay, okay. and uh, mm-hmm. and there's also uh, a Paddock Paradise website that's 
actually Jill's putting together right now somebody. Um, okay. Okay. So that'll be up fairly soon. The but the Facebook is, is a good way to uh, to find out more about us. Yeah, it's real current too, and um, you know, there's all kinds of ideas that people are putting there. It's a great little way to forum uh, with Jamie and and Jill. And um, I would love to have you back for a, a tip, and I would love to have you back maybe to talk further about some of the uh, vices that. Uh, you know, you can discourage through some of your concepts and uh, just overall health of the horse. We're all in it for the love of the horse, and I'm really happy sure. to have you here. Would you come back for a tip? Absolutely. Great. Great. Okay. We would love to have you back, Jamie. And thank you, Jamie Jackson thank you, Jamie. of Paddock okay. Paradise. Carolyn Pine, DVM, lists ways to acquire an affordable horse in our trainer's tip this week. Dr. Caroline Pine, thank you for coming back. I appreciate you. No, you're you. very welcome. It was, it's my pleasure. It was really fun interviewing you. And what I wanted to do was, since we didn't really have a lot of veterinarians on our show in the past, we wanted to have an, a vet tip from somebody who has been around horses and small animals. And, um, you, you know, you just have so many years of experience, over 20 years experience as a veterinarian. Tell us what little nugget, of, golden nugget you have of knowledge for us. Well, I think the main thing today is to focus on adoption. Uh, there's a lot of organizations out there always adopting mm-hmm. and advertising for dogs and cats, but um, there's a lot of young kids out there that want to have an experience of, of the relationship between an equine, and one way to do that is by adopting a horse. And um, there's lots of organizations that do that. There's horses that come off the raceway that need a home. There's horses that come from abused homes or homes that just cannot afford to keep them due to either relocation or financial reasons. Mm-hmm. And those horses are available for adoption. Many people say, well, I can't afford to purchase a horse. That's not necessarily the case, especially nowadays. And in order to keep that available, we do need to educate our public that these animals need homes too. Mm-hmm. So are you talking about um, horses that are trained and ready for kids, though? Because they might not necessarily be, like if they're off the track, thoroughbreds, OTTBs, um, you got a little training involved in, you know, uh, do they come with a DVD or anything <laughs> to help out the kids? Well, and that's one of the things where um, pony clubs and uh, trainers come in handy. Uh, It's not just acquiring a a horse and throwing a saddle on it and think you're ready to ride. There you go. It's a learning situation for both. It's just like as much as it is for the horse as it is for the rider. Just like acquiring a new puppy. You still want to go to puppy class. You still want to go to training classes and teach them how to potty take care of his potty issues and how do you feed him and things like that. You could go to a veterinarian, get some heads up on that, get, go to a trainer, find out as far as what kind of tack is available, where is my horse going to be able to ride, where do I keep my horse, how do I feed my horse. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of information out there, especially now on the website that you can look up. Just mm-hmm. thinking that my daughter wants to ride, my son wants to ride, but I can't have a horse, they're too big. It's just um, really limiting yourself to the, capab- to the abilities to give your child that experience that's so so unbelievably rewarding. Rewarding. Yeah, that's a great tip. I, I, I think one of the incremental ways I've seen it done well is that kids can volunteer sometimes at these rescues, even if it's just cleaning buckets and getting around horses too a little bit before they even go into or horse ownership. And, and that's what you were talking about um, with our interview about the Pony Club, giving these kids a real background and responsibility um, ahead of just adopting a horse. Yeah. Yeah. And that's another aspect again about the Pony Club is we do a lot of the community service in that we would open up our mm-hmm. own horses into the arena and have people come in and actually walk a horse or and we would yeah. walk the horse while they're riding him. Just, just to have that initial, okay, I, this is not that intimidating. I can do this. This is something that is feasible yeah. And they wouldn't have that experience available to them unless they had someone up there that gave them the helping hand. Yeah, that's right. Well, thank you for telling us about that, too. Yeah, a good reminder for those of us who sometimes know that but, you know, are trying to figure out what to do for their kids to incrementally get them around horses more. And it's a good tip for any parent who's thinking about getting into horses at all. Thank you very much. And a lot Dr. of times you can have your horse and ride it without actually owning a horse. At That's the Pony right. Club, we lease horses. We'll find a way to get a horse for that 
rider that has the interest in having that experience. So That's it's not really just acquiring the horse. If you say, well, I can't put a horse in my backyard. Yeah, you could rent a stall. You could lease a horse. There's lots of other options out there. We'll make it Absolutely. happen. Very good. Absolutely. I totally agree. And sometimes that is the most economical way to get into it, too, because you're just helping somebody who needs that horse ridden a couple more, if it's a good match, a couple more days a week, and that really makes a better life for a horse. Exactly. Very good point. Thank you, Dr. Caroline Pine. Thanks again from Paws and Claws Veterinary Hospital in Yorba Linda, California. Hi, I'm Monty Roberts, and I know that I'm transforming the lives of horses globally. You can learn to do it, too, on my Equus Online University. There's a new lesson on there each week, all the way from join up to advanced. Watch world's champions give their lessons. Join at MontyRoberts.com. Go to my Equus Online University. You can transform your horse, too. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Where in the world is Monty Roberts? Monty is looking forward to meeting some new friends, two-legged and four-legged, August 1 and 2. Coming right up, we have the Riding with Respect workshop, and then he goes straight into August 3 through 7, Monty's special training at Flag is Up Farms in California. Then September 5th, we have a really special night of inspiration with Monty and Pat at Flag is Up Farms. Then he's off to England, and on October 10, 17, 23, and 29, Finishing up in Halloween. Do they have Halloween in, in England? I'm not sure. But October 31st, his last uh, show uh, is in Scotland. So he goes from top to bottom or bottom to top. There we go. And November 6th, he comes back and there is a uh, Horse Sense for Leaders. It's a professional development workshop at Flag is Up Farms, building trust-based relationships. And that's with Dr. Sue Kane facilitating. And then November 7th, and eight, we have our Wild at Heart weekend with uh, my mom, sculptress and equestrian Pat Roberts, and some of her dearest friends. A little celebrity tossed in there, too. So that's November 7 through 8, Wild at Heart. Ooh, that's going to be fun. You can I find you might like Yeah, that. you can find more at MontyRoberts.com, the website. If you're old-fashioned and you'd like to make a phone call, you can reach the folks at Monty Roberts at 805-688-6288. And for today, more details about today's show, you can go to horsemanshipradio.com where you'll find links and photos and more information about today's guests and or topics. And as always, we love to hear your feedback here. So follow us at, on Facebook at facebook.com slash Monty Roberts, or you can follow us on Twitter if you're a tweeter at twitter.com slash Monty underscore Roberts and go get the app. Horse Radio that's Network. It. Yeah, that's right. Horse Radio Network app is a free way for you to listen to all the Horse Radio Network shows with you on your phone, Android or iPhone. You can download it today. Go to your app store and search Horse Radio Network. That's true. And many thanks to our sponsors. That's IFA.com, Omega Fields, and Monty Roberts University. We couldn't do it without you. And be sure to visit all the other great shows on the Horse Radio Network at www horseradionetwork.com. And until next time, have many happy horse hours. <music> 